Welcome to the Med Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. What's up, friends? We have a killer show for you today. Our guest is the chairman and chief investment officer of GQG Partners a boutique investment management firm focused on global and emerging markets equities. In today's show, we hear our guest is building an asset management firm for the future. We start with his early career as an emerging markets PM and lessons learned navigating the tequila crisis. Then we dive into his decision to venture out on his own, start a new firm focused on having skin in the game, a diverse team, and a long-term view. We talk about the different investment styles of the firm and how he's positioned right now. As we wind down, we take a look around the world and hear our guest thoughts on emerging markets, Russia, India, and Asia. Please enjoy this episode with GQG Partners, Rajiv Jain. Rajiv, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ed. Good to be here. Where do we find you? Well, I've been in Fort Lauderdale for a decade, so I'm still hanging out here. It's getting a little bit crowded here, but now, as you know, but yeah, it's still Fort Lauderdale, Florida. We were joking beforehand, it's been the venture capital startup tech highway moving to fort lauderdale miami sunny weather of florida too many bugs for me i used to grow up going to visit learned how to water ski in a little town called land lakes outside of tampa a lot of bugs would be hard for me but i love florida in general need to get back to miami you from florida originally where did you start out yeah yeah i was here 30 years ago i'm originally from india and then Lived in New York for 20 years and decided to move to Florida back again a decade ago. It's 2010, actually. So, yeah, it's been now. Wow. You weren't always running a multi-billion dollar asset manager. What was your entry point? You said you moved from India. Where'd you get started? I got hooked onto trading stocks in high school. And that's actually why I ended up here in the U.S. There wasn't much of an industry in India in the late 80s, early 90s. So I ended up coming here in 1990. Do you remember any of the first names? take you way back to that time? Because for me, I remember I was late 90s. So E-Trade, Lucent Technologies, CMGI, all the bubble stocks from the 90s. <laughs> the game stops up today. What were some of yours? Do you remember? There was a, I remember a company called CVD. But I need to call brokers to get quotes and so on and so forth. Charlie Victor David CVD, always the company disappeared. So one of the fascinating things is that if you start early, the good chance that you'll get wiped out early. I lost whatever I had in school and college. So that actually the best thing that could have happened because the chance of getting wiped out later goes on dramatically. So and that was before the tech bubble, obviously, and the tech bubble came later on. So there were different, there was a big biotech bubble in the early 90s. You managed to wipe out during a rip-roaring bull market. That's impressive. I mean, that's even harder to do almost, Rajiv. I at least had to wait for the bubble to explode to buy a bunch of options and implode all my money. But it's a great lesson. And it's one that you we mentioned on Twitter where I said the best thing could possibly happen is you lose all your money when you're young and don't have any because it'll leave those scars, that scar tissue that I think is pretty useful. Now, it's not pleasant. You never wish it upon someone particularly, but in retrospect, it's a great learning experience. Exactly. I think there were a few different ones in the early 90s. I'm talking about 1991. It was obviously just after the SNL crisis. 
a bunch of other names blew up. But so it was less of a bull market phenomenon, much more. I managed to be more specific. And as you said, it took quite a skill set to not make money in the bull market and then still get wiped out. So, <laughs> All right. So fast forward, you didn't give up. You said, I'm going to stick with this. Walk us forward a little bit. As a graduate in 93, I didn't know anybody in Wall Street. So I was in Florida. I said, I have to go to New York. And I really didn't know anybody. And obviously, University of Miami is in the first place, first port of call. So I just picked up the CFA directory, start cold calling people. And one of the calls taken was by CIO at that time of UBS Asset Management. And for a strange reason, he said, yeah, okay, come on and I'll talk to you, Malcolm Klinger. And that's how I got my first job, which was 93. So three years after I came to US and then switched from there on. So yeah, I think, I think it's kind of fascinating that depending on where you start, it can influence your thinking quite a bit. And one of the biggest lessons always has been that it doesn't really matter whether you are good at it in a particular aspect, but as long as you're able to adapt and learn, you, you can actually still survive. And that was part of the sort of adaptability. I didn't know anybody, so I thought, let me just cold call people. And the other aspect was how helpful people can be, I mean, to strangers. And a lot of people who were extremely helpful in sort of in getting my foot in the door. Wow. There's so much already to talk about that I think is so instructive to the young folk. I mean, I get probably a resume a day from people or the inquiries and just even the effort to make what you're talking about, the cold calling, making the outreach where most that's uncomfortable, they're unwilling to do it already to try to get your foot in the door. Got a lot of stories, a lot of failures about that as a young man trying to get a job as well. Definitely learn what not to do. All right. So you start the career. What is the focus of that time? Are you junior analyst? Are you working your way up through research or trading? What was kind of the progression? I started more as a sort of quasi-quant. So I used to do a lot of quant work. I was always fascinated in terms of sort of get the, what I think about is kind of the guardrails. So it's sort of semi-quant, but also doing the fundamental work on both global as well as US. So it was a journalist. And then ended up switching to Juan Tobel, where they hired me as a deputy portfolio manager or co-PM for some of the strategies there, which in hindsight, you know, I thought, gee, it's kind of late. I was 26. So now I'm a little bit surprised that I did manage to get a job as a PM in relatively short time. I think the learning was tremendous because that was within two months, there was the Mexican tequila crisis, as they call it. And running an emerging market fund, you, you really don't know what hit you because you think that oh, stocks are cheap and then you lose your short on the currency on top of that. In the 90s turned out to be quite instructive for me because I started my career both US as well as non-US, but because I became a PM of emerging first, I think, I think living through the 90s in one crisis after the other, the tequila crisis in December 94, and then the Asian crisis in 97, the Russian crisis, and so on and so forth. And as you know, nobody made a dime in emerging markets in the 90s. That actually turned out to be extremely helpful in sort of calibrating and adapting to the changing environment. Because if you've grown up in sort of a secular bull market, you feel that's how the world is supposed to work. So I think it's just coincidental, obviously, that it ended up that way. But I did get a lot of freedom to operate the way I wanted because it was a relatively small part of the book, so nobody really cared. I was going to say, 20-year-old, they're probably just like, look, dude, no one cares about emerging markets. He can do no harm. What's the worst that can happen? Let's put somebody on this. But even emerging markets, which have been largely out of favor for much of the past 10 years relative to the U.S., for the listeners that are older and remembered that 2000 to 2007 period was rip-roaring. Everyone wanted emerging markets. So these things tend to come in and out of fashion. But the 90s in particular, as you mentioned, 
massive sort of boom busts and opportunities in many of those countries. What was the framework at that point? Were you guys just like, look, let's just market cap weight, equal weight these companies, or let's just buy the biggest? Was it old school like Templeton or other value-added fundamental research where you're uh, Mobius, where you're like on the plane every day to all these locales, boots on the ground? How'd you guys go about it? First of all, there wasn't that much money to go around or have a vast team or something. I feel that there's a huge benefit of starting at a smaller shop because you end up doing a bunch of different things. So I started much more on the quantitative side. Let's find the best markets and then look for the best names, best names in terms of classic backward-looking high ROE, high margins, and so on and so forth. Now, fast forward to the Asian crisis and realize that none of the top-down work actually worked. The only reason I kind of did okay, survived in the Asian crisis was because the stocks did okay, and that was quality focused, the high ROE, low leverages. So that actually protected me. And that sort of started the transition away from top-down, bottom-up to much more bottom-up oriented because it's not the top-down work I did, which is a little bit disheartening because none of that worked. So that led to the transition towards much more bottom-up oriented, good balance sheet, decent businesses, less lotless valuation sensitivity, which obviously worked okay into the dot-com till that came around. And then obviously there was another transition after that. So I think that has been, if you ask me, that has been a key part of my, what I call longer-term survival is simply seeing where and how the thing process doesn't work and let's see what we need to improve and change. And that adaptability, I feel, is critical for longer-term survival rather than saying I found a holy grail and we keep rinse, repeat, you know, growth, value, quality. So and the best place to learn from mistakes. Do you have any memorable experiences, trades, investments from that period, like the late 90s? Because like you mentioned, it was so fraught with market downturns, but also rip-roaring returns in markets as well, where some of these markets would be up over 100% in a year or 200%. I recall some of these just crazy opportunities. Anything particular stick out during that period? A bunch of them. I mean, I remember how the Russians traded in the 90s. There were a few names where basically well, market makers were some of the large banks. And as the market started melting, there were no market makers. And they said, gee, they were liquid. Well, they were liquid. They're no longer liquid. And that was a huge lesson in terms of what does liquidity truly mean? And things which are a few billion dollars all of a sudden went from trading hundreds of millions of dollars a day to not even a few million a day. And I remember some of the Russian pink sheet names, which melted. I remember there was another sort of Taiwanese. This is just around the Asian crisis. There was a closed-end fund, which not listed in the London International Exchange or the, the GDRs as such. And that thing, there were no market makers and the spreads were like 30, 40%. And that should make anybody nervous. And by the way, these were relatively liquid names, how the market makers can disappear. And that's an opportunity, I think, for a lot of people as they think about even over the past decade or two, even last year, certainly during the financial crisis, but this concept of people getting upside down on liquidity. I mean, even with this, this recent Archegos with some of these names that have this beautiful escalator up, and then all of a sudden you're like, wait, why is this large cap stock down 50% on no news? And it's simply supply, demand, sort of liquidity situation. And so, but it's not infrequent. And that's kind of one of the bigger surprises in my career is like this kind of keeps always happening. And even the big boys, I mean, if you remember back to the endowments in 2008, got completely upside down on this whole liquidity, illiquidity because of all the private equity and VC and real 
asset holdings that was a mismatch. So having that sort of powder or ability to take advantage of things when they get dislocated, I think is one of the biggest opportunities and also biggest warnings not to do to get yourself in that situation because a forced seller is the, probably the single worst place to be in all of investing. And the returns are just misleading in a way because the other side, there is nobody to trade. That's when you really get a sense of what is liquid, what is not liquid. I feel that a lot of folks don't fully incorporate that, particularly in a bull market feels that, gee, they're liquid, to your point. It happens time and time again, and I'm sure it'll happen again this time around, that when you have some of the names which are 30, 40, 50 times revenue, and they have, quote unquote, TAM of X billion dollars. I mean, it was just laughing today. There was this Latin American company from Uruguay, which is now being valued at 5 billion plus. GDP of Uruguay is 50 billion, and it's supposed to be the next PayPal slash Aryan. And you know this, and by the way, a lot of marquee hedge funds piled into this. And, and some of the most well-known hedge funds, you know that it is getting kind of late. And the question is, okay, what's the other side of the trade? When this thing unravels, can you even leave the table? What do you mean? 20, 30 times sales sounds like a bargain. I mean, and we're talking some of these 50, 60 times out there today. Come on, Rajiv, why are you being <laughs> so frugal with your valuations? Uruguay is high in my vacation to-do list. So I'll do some due diligence for you if I ever make it down there. Really want to get down to that part of South America. Okay, so we're now on to kind of the internet bubble popping in the US, 2000. Where do we find you at that point? I was running both uh, sort of co-PM on the international and emerging markets by then. So one of the things that actually was quite remarkable was, some of you might remember, a company called Hikari Sushin out of Japan. It's still listed, by the way. And that is one of the most memorable ones where one of my colleagues was so adamant that why that's the best name. And that, by the way, that literally went limit down. I remember clients calling him and saying, gee, is there mispricing? And I was thinking, it's not mispricing, it's limit down. <laughs> and it was limit down for, by the way, 20 days. Okay? So that was quite a remarkable and learning experience, which led to sort of much more valuation discipline. So one of the things that has helped me navigate over the years is just sort of recognizing there's a mistake and then cutting back. So that led to my becoming a CIO in early 2002 and still running at that point, just under a billion dollars thereabouts. But the interesting thing is as soon as I became a CIO, because of performance issues in some of the larger funds that are responsible at that time, I mean, 70% of clients quickly fired because of performed bad performance, new CIO. So that was quite an experience because having 70% of your clients walk away as soon as you're running the show was not easy. I think that was, again, it was a remarkable period in a way. By the way, I think, I think it's important lesson in my opinion from an investing perspective is that you do get enough time to react to the changing environment. If the regimes are changing, you get enough indication. The problem is most of the people end up anchoring on the prior regime. If you go back 2000, 2002, so it was along a lot of tech names, we're still un underperforming in 99, but there was time in 2001 to react to the chain data points as the earnings estimates began to came down and so on and so forth. So that, as you know, was the beginning of a new regime as such, which lasted almost a decade. All right. So financial crisis is next. You mentioned the ability to kind of shift gears. Was that something you thought the signs were starting to flash at the yellow at the intersection? Was it something that it'd be able to adapt to this sort of regime change? Because that was, I think, in many ways, a pretty big shift. The 2000, a few different secular sort of cyclical markets mixed in over that period. But then you had this big daddy. You want to walk us through that period? 
I mean, from 2001 to 2007 or thereabouts, financial was a big part of the book and particularly European banks and some US banks too, which kind of did okay. We didn't have much of tech. In fact, it's kind of fascinating that that era led to the whole shop being called a value shop and now they call it a growth shop. So I've been called a growth manager in the 90s and then value manager and now growth manager. So I'm probably one of the few ones who has been branded differently over different periods, but same style by the way. So which is kind of fascinating in a way how folks do like to pigeonhole you in terms of, oh, gee, this is quality growth or deep value or what have you. Now, coming back to 2007, 2008. So the financials, I think was a relatively obvious one to exit financials in the developed market book, not an emerging market book. I think the mistake I made was really not cutting back, not connecting dots and cutting back some of the basic material and energy names that we had. So I think that was a mistake in hindsight, because if you have a financial system under pressure, then it'll be hard for the, some of the cyclical areas to do well. And clearly, they were a little bit frothy at that point. So if you ask me, that was a mistake. Financial is fine. We did cut back financial because there were plenty of telltale signs. I mean, if you remember, Pearson's hedge funds blew up in, I believe, first quarter or March, April 2007, and Lehman went under in September 2008. There were plenty of rumblings by summer of 2007. So there were telltale signs of potential problems. What I didn't do well was connect a dot towards the basic material energy side, which you did have exposure to. And the other part, I think, is the whole notion of people talk about consistency or backward-looking quality being the hallmark of quality names. And I always thought that that is much more the high ROE, consistency, and so on and so forth. It's a much more a function of the environment that you've been operating in rather than some inherent quality of the business. So if, for example, the 70s, if you bought Coca-Cola and so on and so forth, well, they didn't exactly do well. And in fact, what's interesting is I think Gillette was trying to get into oil drilling at that point and Coca-Cola was trying to get into movies. So from that vantage point, the issue of connecting the dots, kind of the macro input matters. I think that I believe I didn't appreciate enough till 2008 came along that if the financial system is under pressure. It's very hard for the broader system to do well. And that's so the legacy of that lasted over a decade after that. So you decide not to retire to the beaches of Florida and take up kite surfing or fishing, but rather to get started with an entirely new venture. What was the inspiration? Tell us a little bit about your company. I was at Vontable for a long time and the firm grew well from 2002 when I took over. It was $300 million under management and we had net new money for 14 plus years. It's 50 plus billion dollars doing fine. Performance is okay across all strategies, so on and so forth. But I was kind of feeling a little bit sort of constricted because being part of a large European financial institution, the usual stuff begins to come in. And I'm very passionate about investing. I was no longer having fun. And my view is that the journey is what really matters. There's no destination. Destination is six feet under. That's the only destination everybody has. It ain't fun. So let's kick it off again. And the other motivation was that having learned a little bit over the years, what is it that I would do different? In other words, let's start with a clean sheet of paper and redo it based on my personal mistakes. By the way, so I didn't bring anybody from my prior team. And the question was, okay, if this is the area I haven't done well, how can I address that? Because one of the fascinating things about investing is, unlike tennis, you can't have somebody else play our backhand if your backhand is weak. But investing, you can't have somebody else play our backhand. So that was the thought process. This is a clean sheet of paper. Let's set up one of the most client-aligned boutiques in the business based on the mistakes I made. So let's keep what has worked and let's avoid what has not worked and see if we can improve the game. And that was quite thrilling in a way, because rather than trying to set something up to sell, 
because a lot of the shops I feel are set up to sell rather than saying, okay, this is how I'm going to improve the game. Whether it works or not, time will tell. That was real motivation. It echoes a phrase my mom loves to say, which is life is not a dress rehearsal. So what were some of the foundational principles? You got this exciting opportunity to start from scratch and build an organization and entirely image and philosophy you're interested in. So what was it? Yeah, first of all, I think one basic aspect of investing is that it's a truly a privilege and honor to manage somebody else's money. Based on my decision, somebody's retirement might be at stake. And that easily gets, it's not about performance, not about anything. First of all, is preserve capital. So be careful because by the time the retiree gets the check, it's too late to sort of say, I'm going to start again. It's not like buying a widget. If the cell phone you buy doesn't work, I mean, it's not a life-changing event. You either give it back or you buy a new one. But if the returns are bad. So I believe that investment boutique should focus first and foremost on how we're aligning ourselves to what clients do. And what does alignment mean? That first of all, I've committed to have majority of my net worth. I'm talking not liquid, entire net worth outside of value GQG now, invest in the products we offer to our clients. Not some separate vehicles, same exact vehicles. Tim Carver was a CEO. He has maybe two thirds or I know majority of his net worth, same like me. So both CEO and myself have committed to a majority of our net worth, always the same strategy because you got to eat your own cooking. Number two, we don't allow any personal trading of any sort. It's one of the dirty little secrets in the business is people spend a lot of time managing their own money, which looks very different from the client's money. There's nothing wrong in managing your own money, but it's got to be identical to what you're doing for clients. So I don't have a single penny with any other private equity, long short, long only, venture capital, or what have you. That's a commitment in terms of alignment. Number two is that I was a co-CEO at once, so I didn't want to do that. Again, so I didn't want to be a CEO or anything. I enjoy investing, so I'm a CIO, I'm not a CEO. The other one is that it should focus only on longer-term performance, which, by the way, kind of to state the obvious, but see, one of the fascinating things about this business is you can get average for free. You don't get any other business. You don't get an average free. You don't get an average car for free. You don't get an average cell phone for free, but you can get average manager for basically free now, maybe one basis point or something. So if you can't add value, you're not really needed in the long run. The whole investment organization should be entirely focused on that aspect. But it's not about sort of saying, this is how I'm, I'm going to the greatest investor or something. You need a little bit of humility to say, look, this is not about being be the greatest investor. First of all, is preserving somebody else's capital, co-investing them with them, and then see, then you can do a reasonable job on top of that. You mentioned a couple of things in there. The first being, it sounds so obvious, the skin in the game part. And I mirror what you're talking about and invest almost exclusively in our funds and strategies, but the average mutual fund manager has zero invested in their own funds. And that always surprises people. They're like, what do you mean it can't? And if you look at it as less than a hundred thousand, it's even a higher number. And to me, that's crazy, but whatever. That seems like an obvious conclusion because as we know, incentives drive everything in our world. And it particularly... And I was talking about this last year, the last conference I went to pre-pandemic or kind of during pandemic was talking about this concept of, look, if you're an active manager, the base case, like the investing for dummies, that world is a commodity. It's free now. And you mentioned a couple of basis points. You include short lending. It's probably not only already free, but actually paying you to own a portfolio. That's amazing, but also has a lot of implications. It means to pay someone to do more, like they better be adding some sort of 
value in a world we live in, which historically is just the closet indexing world, that is a rarity. Okay, so the structure was important to kind of get right, as you mentioned. And what about the investment philosophy? How do you guys think about actually building portfolios, putting money to work? What kind of portfolios do you guys manage? All that good stuff. So the other thing was structuring the team. So vast majority of people have said, oh, gee, the same team I've worked all my life. And I've actually, based on my experience and mistakes, basically learning from mistakes, I said, okay, this didn't work. Let's try to change that. So I didn't bring anybody from my prior team. And it's like, what can we do different? So one of the things that tried to different was let's make sure that people come from very diverse backgrounds. So the folks, for example, who have long, short equities, long, short credit, value shops, growth shops, private equity, journalists, forensic accountant. So it's an extremely diverse group of thinkers. So that's the first first sort of part of the whole process. And then the question is, what I would say is kind of mom and apple pie, quality business, sensible prices, taking a long-term view, however, willing to adapt as the data point change. So while it's easy to say our edge is long-term horizon, I think it's a little too simplistic to, in my opinion, to think that way. Yes, they're a lot more shorter-term oriented investors. However, they plan to do long-term only. And the fact is, if you take very long-term view, well, Japanese corporates take a very long-term view. That hasn't turned out to be any better. So the question is, what point do you adapt and recognize your mistake? So focus on the quality of business first by eliminating the weaker companies. I think the biggest point investing is, as Charlie Ellis said, is a loser's game. So you got to cut the tail first. If you're fishing in a better pond, you improve your odds. And I think it's all about improving your odds. So first improve odds by cutting off weaker businesses relative to their own industry or whatever. So I've owned commodities, financials, obviously technology, software, so on and so forth. So everything should be investable because one of the notions that quality doesn't include cyclicals, I find a little bit strange. Consistency of earnings is not always the hallmark of quality because that could be a function of the environment that you've been in. As you know, a lot of, you mentioned CMGI and JDSUs of this world, people thought they were quality and they no longer were quality as the tech downturn started in the 2000s. And I wouldn't surprise it kind of happens again this time around. So cyclicals should be very investable. The question, the barriers to entry. So get the barriers to entry right to the extent you can, and then see, do you have a sense of where the business might be heading three, four years out? So you talk about an approach to investing, you mentioned a couple of times, it's funny, people characterize you in different ways, depending on the cycle. We once had a fund that I think was in seven different Morningstar categories over the course of its lifetime. So like hard to pigeonhole. And this concept of value, I think everyone in their head thinks of the old Graham net net, like just dirt cheap sort of stocks, but even Buffett evolved. And you talk a little bit about this too, is value and growth is really two sides of the same coin. So talk to us a little bit about the whole value growth and we can expand a little bit into the third pillar that I think you guys focus particularly on, which is the quality side. Floor is yours. First of all, in talk quality, it's about as the barriers to entry, how high the barriers to entry are. And that might mean a lot of cyclical, that might mean a lot of software names or tech or what have you. Technology today is a lot less cyclical than it used to be 20 years ago. The quality is meaningfully different. Now, once you're done with that, then the question is, what's the sustainable growth rate five years out and what are willing to pay for that? But that's a function of what the outlook would be beyond five years. Because if the business outlook could change dramatically, the multiples will collapse. Now, that's relatively, I would say, 
standard or obvious. I think what is not, and I feel this is one of the edge we have, is that are you reacting enough to the changing data points? Because think about this way is like driving. When you're going from New York to Washington, D.C., you kind of know where, you, where you're heading. However, would it take three hours, five hours, or 10 hours? You can't predict that because it depends on the road conditions. So in market terms, if inflation goes high and interest rates go creep up, let's say, to 3 3.5% 10-year treasury, would some of the software names, and we own a bunch of them, would be valued at the same multiples or our experience of the last decade has colored our longer-term view of what the multiple should be? The problem is I'm not here predicting that because nobody can predict that. The question is, are you reacting and how do you incorporate that? So the first part is let's get to the quality of businesses at that point based on recent history, based on projection, and so on and so forth. Once you own them, then the second leg is, okay, how would you change your opinion? And that part, I feel, is where things tend to go wrong because we do all the work on the buy side before buy a name. The question is, what are the data points you would need to see when you sell the name or what has to happen? And my view is that, frankly, when people say, oh, we sell when fundamentals deteriorate, that's where I dump all my mistakes. That's basically acknowledgement of the fact that, okay, this is where I didn't really quite understand what was happening and say, oh, the fundamentals, quote unquote, changed. I personally, the better view is just have a competitive viewpoint of the names. In other words, just like a sports team, you force rank every name every day. So if you remove a name, it's not just become a bad name, but maybe there's another name which looks much better. So to simply say that we buy a name here, it gets to fair value in X many years, we sell it and we recycle it. That's not how the world really does operate. I mean, some businesses just stop growing, but at what point do you pull the plug? It's very hard. So rather than saying we sell when fundamental change, my view is just force rank everything almost on a daily basis. And just like a sports team, you have a bench and you monitor a bunch of names and you see the fundamentals improving your one name more, you, maybe you sell a name you bought yesterday. That's perfectly fine because that allows you to adapt. So if you go back to, let's say the GFC, the environment post GFC has been dramatically different. Vast majority of grow shops that we talk about today, including quality grow shops, didn't really do well pre-GFC. In fact, there's a whole new breed of growth shops which are doing well today. Vast majority didn't survive the dot-com collapse. <laughs> it's like the, don't see that many old, bold traders. Exactly. It's funny you mentioned that. My favorite extreme examples is always the short volatility option sellers. Those guys will put together like a beautiful three, four year track record during benign environments where they make 2% a month every single month, sharp ratio of three. It somehow ends up attracting a few hundred million dollars and then they print the down 50 to 90 or 100%, which has had the case over the last few years, washes it all out, rinse, repeat over and over again. Which, back to your commentary, these cycles, in my mind, in regimes, sometimes they're quick and sometimes they last for years and decades. The experience of Japan, my goodness, the 80s, and then they used to call it the lost decade, but then you had to call it the lost decades because it was three. And it's in a world of Robin Hood and day trading and people looking at things on a daily basis. It's hard to have that perspective. You touched on something we really got into a few months ago on social, which was 99% of the effort people, I think, put into investing is the buy decision. What should we buy? When to buy it? Stressing out about it. And almost no one, I think we did a Twitter poll on this, sort of established or 
thought about how to exit at the time of the buy. They just buy it and then they say, okay, well, let's just see how it goes. Let's wing it. And then you have problems on both sides. You have problems if it does really well and you have problems if it does really poorly because the emotions just get involved and you didn't have a process. And one of the things that is really thoughtful you mentioned is seeking out that evidence to the contrary. I mean, how many investors listening, if you're long Bitcoin or short Tesla as two good examples, you just spend all day online looking for confirming evidence. It's like you're only following people that have the same views. It's not what you should be doing is literally the opposite. It's spending all day trying to kill your thesis, but no one does that. Or only maybe the old <laughs> successful investors do, but most people I know don't. Let's talk a little bit about you guys got started with a new company and now you manage a gazillion dollars in the mid-teens. I think 2016, you said, seemed like a nice benign period for a few years. And then wham, 2020 came along. Walk us through that period. What was it like? What were you guys sort of experiencing? Any major turnover? Did you guys just kind of close your eyes, put the ostrich portfolio, put your head in the sand? Or was it a pretty active year? Walk us through what it was like. Sometimes I'm a little bit envious of folks who say, look, we believe these are fantastic businesses and they'll be around forever and we'll all happily ever after. Because I feel that, you know, it kind of almost like a Rip Van Winkle portfolio, you were happy till you disappear. And I think the, what we try to do is maybe living a little more in an uncomfortable zone. Because my view is that if you're not sure how the deep the valley is, the 10 feet, 1,000 feet, just back off. And if you go back to 2019 and 20, we actually were becoming fairly constructive on corporate earnings growth. And again, as I said, much more data dependent. You know, the better opportunity was, for example, some of the European banks. For the first time, I bought an airline last quarter of 2019. Talk about perfect timing. I said, <laughs> all the years I buy an airline and last quarter of 2019. <laughs> Nobody could have timed that better, by the way. As January evolved, I mean, one of the analysts said, look, there's this wireless this issue we're hearing in China. You may want to pay attention to that. This is early, first week of January or something. And obviously, having looked to the SARS, maybe nothing else, let's start cutting back. So we start cutting back the airlines in January and February or thereabouts. And then February came along and we started looking for, and by the way, we have also a team whose job is nothing else but criticize everything we do. The compensation is structured around that. Oh, man. That's awesome. Spend a little time on that real quick, not to interrupt you, but that's such a cool idea. Tell us a little more. I think because, as you said, the incentive is always to high-five each other and agree. In fact, I've read people who basically would eliminate anybody who disagrees with you because, oh, this is our style. This is ABC. You have to walk exactly the same dotted line which I personally find a little bit crazy because then there's no disagreement. I mean, you all behave like lemmings and you'll jump out of the window somewhere online because there's nobody disagreeing. So for that, I said, it's better to just structure the team differently. One who's incentivized and compensated to disagree with you. So in other words, their bonus is dependent on if they like something, they basically own the name too. By default, they disagree with you. And unless you change the compensation, it won't work because I mean, whose bread I eat, his song I sing. They're not, nobody's going to disagree with you if they know that, yeah, yeah, ask for disagreement or devil's advocate. But really what you want is you already made a decision to buy in an ongoing basis. So that is part of, and we want to make sure that's documented, which we document, by the way, the disagreements. And I think that has been an instrument in forming the culture where disagreements are actually appreciated and documented just to make sure that what the disagreements are. So every name, and my client meetings, by the way, said, would you like this name? I said, I like it, but this so-and-so person team hates it, you should talk to both. 
because on balance, all we're trying to do is get the odds in your favor. In other words, if the odds are, let's say, to make a hypothetical number 60% positive, 40% negative, that's all you need. In fact, once you get to 80, 90% conviction, you, in my opinion, you're no longer objective. So if it'll work, it'll work ridiculously well. Like if you look at the fangs of the last decade, the truly believers did very well. The question is, would they be able to get off the train when there's time to get off the train? People like me always are sort of doubting jacks and never had the same upside because we always sort of checking, cross-checking, questioning, cutting back on data points. So that's why I thought it's important. But that is part of the restructuring I thought about doing when, when you're setting up the GQG that it has to be done. It's hard to change with existing people, by the way. You almost have to gut the team, which is why I didn't want to bring anybody from prior team because cultures are hard to change. So that is part and parcel of it's embedded in how we think. There's a lot of self-criticism that happens and is documented. We're here in 2021. Let's talk a little bit about what the world looks like now. How are you guys thinking about the world? Is it a treasure trove of opportunities? Is it a dangerous, fraught dungeon of booby traps? Is it a mix? Is there any particular places, sectors you guys like? What's the world look like in May 2021? Yeah, it's always confusing, but it's particularly confusing now. Because let me paint you two scenarios. Number one is that we remain this inflation transitory. Although I would wonder, okay, what is not transitory? Everything is temporary at the end of the day. So define transitory. The 70s were transitory too, but it lasted a decade, which is enough to kill you if you're long, high multiple names. But if you remain in a low inflation environment, then the prior regime stays. Then the software name, the SaaS names, for example, or the technology names, fairly high multiple tech names is the place you want to be because there's quote-unquote digital transformation, although the evidence seems to be rather scarce in terms of any acceleration, by the way. So I think there's a lot of narrative, but there's, there's a lot of talk, not enough walk. On the other side is if inflation does pick up because there's structural changes happening, the supply chains are shifting away from China. China is no longer exporting deflation. They might be exporting a little bit of inflation because of the pollution control leading to shutting down some of the excess capacities, which leads to tighter supplies. If that happens and inflation ticks up a little bit, does it mean there could be massive shift in the leadership in the markets? And by the way, I'm not predicting one or the other. I'm saying that to me, it's equally likely. It'll be dangerous for your financial health to assume one would happen. And I don't know which one, by the way. And I think sitting here and now, you can make an equally convincing case for either or. And that is the trickiest part here, which is why I feel sometimes that maybe just easy to say, nope, that would not happen. This is transfer inflation. And we are still betting on, as you mentioned, 30 time price to revenue with X billion TAM. And obviously, these companies are no expenses because even the EBITDA is adjusted EBITDA. I have an accounting background, so maybe I'm finicky on the accounting side. Even the revenue, by the way, is fudged sometime these days, which is fascinating. But as you know, if interests do tick up even a little bit for a whole host of reasons, again, I'm not predicting that, does it mean that the leadership change could be rather dramatic? And we see signs of that, by the way. If that happens, what sectors immediately got hit when inflation ticked up? The other part is from a valuation perspective, there's certain cyclical areas which are actually now looking attractive. Why? Because there's structural change happening in those industries. So we have to incorporate that in thinking. So what has happened at the portfolio level, to make a long story short, is we've been net setters of technology. We actually underweight technology in almost all our portfolios, except emerging markets. Our exposure to financials has gone up. Our exposure to some of the industrials has gone up a little bit. So at the margin, this, by the way, this has been happening for 
five, six months. Again, without making a big call either way, because macro has to be a switch off. It is not a switch on. You don't buy because of good macro, but that is part of risk management tool. How could you not incorporate that? Because if inflation is letting, let's say three and a half, four percent there's plenty of evidence that certain industries, while they do have pricing power, the multiples that you're paying for those businesses would shrink because the fact that multiples have expanded in last year and a half, two years, why wouldn't they revert back to where they were just two years ago? We think about like the last year, there seems to at least be three kind of waypoints we talked about where there was obviously the bottom in March of the stock markets, the interest rate in the US sort of bottoming in the summertime and then the election, of course, and you can kind of target returns on various sort of shifts since then. And certainly this year, some of those themes have accelerated. Do you guys think in terms of countries or sectors at all, as you bucket your ideas where you're like, look, how does the macro play into that? Or is it purely bottom up and wherever it falls, it falls? Or is it like, look, we actually love China right now or Russia Or is it just because you're looking at the stocks and that's where the path leads you? Yeah, so it is bottom up primarily. However, there is a macro, what are called macro switch off. So for example, we actually find a lot of opportunity in Russia. In fact, even in emerging markets, our portfolio has shifted away from Asia towards non-Asian markets and so in developed markets. So while we're finding more opportunities in emerging markets at the global level, by the way, our exposure to Asia in general has gone down, non-Asia has gone up. However, there is macro risk, the sanction risk in Russia, for example. Now I think the regulatory risk come back with a vengeance in China. And I think it'll be naive to assume that doesn't matter because the difference people talk about US regulatory risk in Amazon and Google and so on and so forth. Well, there's a subtle difference, which is that Biden or for that matter, Trump couldn't have done anything to Amazon without going to the court system. Some checks and balances. In China, if Xi Jinping calls or somebody calls Tencent, guess what? When they say jump, the answer is, okay, how high? And you're seeing that. And there's regulatory onslaught is actually meaningful. Not every company would be impacted. So there is, is it macro or micro? I don't know. To us, it's pretty bottom up, but it's really coming from the macro perspective, a top-down perspective. So we do try to incorporate that as a risk management tool, kind of a gut check. The second part is at the portfolio construction level. I've seen time and time again that there's an implicit bet without seeming like an explicit bet. Let me give an example. If you own financials, industrials, commodities, last three, four years, there was an implicit bet. It was not sort of deep value portfolio only. You were making a bet on global recovery. And that is a part which has to be part of risk management that is that the bet do you really want to make? In other words, what is the end outcome of those businesses and how much exposure do you want in that specific area? In other words, if economies do well, they'll do well. But if the economies don't do well, could there be much more correlation than you think? So if you own a big tech portfolio today, outside of semis, you are making an implicit bet. Let's say you have 50% in software today. And I've seen portfolios, by the way, people running multi-billion dollars. Well, there's an implicit bet that inflation will remain low and interest rates won't move. You like it or not, they will react a similar way. But if inflation does tick up or interest rates do tick up, you might be surprised because as you rightly pointed out, 20 times revenue is not the norm. These businesses are perfectly fine at 10 times or maybe seven times revenue. And there's a lot of downside if macro environment changes. And I think I've tried to incorporate that from a risk management perspective in our portfolio construction. You mentioned Russia and Russia for various reasons seems to elicit some emotional responses from investors and followers and listeners. 
we bring up the fact that, and I'd like to hear what your sort of thesis is there, but we talk about how Russia stocks versus U.S. stocks, it surprises a lot of people because U.S. has been romping and rolling sort of bull market for a while that Russian stock market over the last five to six years is either matched or outpaced the U.S. Despite that, if you look at a lot of the valuations of the underlying companies or even the market as a whole, relative to that period, the multiples have been actually fairly flat versus the U.S., which has been driven by a lot of multiple expansion. And now you go back further, obviously, the U.S. has creamed Russia, but you have a scenario where we look at the long-term valuations in Russia's single digits in many of them versus the U.S., which is, depending on the broad exposure, pretty expensive. Is this just an energy trade? Is this something that you think is just so hated and unloved that it's an opportunity or what is it? At the end of the day, when you're investing anywhere, the question, how do you get paid as an investor? And the only two ways to get paid. One is your business growth delivers you the earnings growth or dividend or what have you. The second one is the perception about the business changes. So if you look at the information technology sector within the S&P 500 versus the healthcare sector within the S&P 500. The earnings growth, the exception last couple of years, earnings growth are remarkably similar. However, information technology has been re-rated quite dramatically. It's not as growing that much faster. Expectations are higher, but the growth hasn't been that dramatically faster. So the question in Russia is, the growth is a little bit slower, but you get paid back as a dividend. And that has been a big part of total return story. The interesting thing is because the valuation is so low, that means if then the company's paying out 60 or even 100% earnings, by the way, a whole bunch of Russian companies pretty much state their payout ratio. They're going to pay X percent of earnings as dividend period, which I think is fantastic. That should be music to anybody, any investor's ears. That, for example, there's a Russian gold stock we own. They say we're going to pay out 100% of true free cash flow to you. The cost of production is like $400 an ounce. So guess what? That kind of becomes like a gold-plated bond. In other words, as gold goes up, the dividend payout is going to go up. So you're capturing the dividend. And I think that aspect, as you mentioned, Russia is kind of unique where it's still fairly underappreciated. People talk about corporate governance. That's part of emerging markets. You're not going to get US or Switzerland-like corporate governance and trade at seven times earning. Life would be such. But on the other side, China, you do get a lot of similar issues, maybe not as heavy-handed that you might expect, although people select for what happened in Russia in 2003, what caused Ruski and Yukos. But there are more than enough cases in China, something's going to happen. And by the way, we have significant exposure to China. So, but the value she's paying for that, there's no margin of safety. So ironically, and people are surprised this stat, that if you look at last 20 plus years, Russia has actually outperformed China on total return basis. If you just trip out a couple of names, the Baba's at Tencent. So it has actually hasn't been that from an emerging market perspective, because the companies, it's not just oil and gas, but there's some financials which are quite attractive. We don't really have tech exposure, but some of the commodity names, they are by far the lowest cost producers of those commodities. And you're not going to have the EV or renewable revolution without those commodities. But they pay out all of their earnings of free cash flow dividend. So you actually get paid a lot. I'm smiling as you're talking about that because I'm like, most investors listening from the US are like, what are dividends? The dividend yield in the US is so low. It's almost like a foreign concept at this point. But in Russia, a lot of emerging markets, as you mentioned, you can still find companies, three, four, five, six, and north dividend payers. Emerging markets are going to be emerging markets. It's like you can't expect them to 
magically, like you mentioned, have a lot of the governance. But I also laugh some of the times when you're talking about governance and companies in the U.S. are often just as guilty and government is just as unpredictable and unreliable of legislative changes and sort of on and on. You see some of the things that happen. I used to always laugh when people are like, I invest in the U.S. because of stable geopolitics. And I'm like, my goodness. <laughs> That is an interesting perspective because if you travel anywhere else in the world and think that the U.S. has stable geopolitics, it's humorous. All right. So any other countries or sectors or stocks, you're welcome to talk about individual stocks, if you like, that you think are particularly interesting, dangerous, worrisome, anything on your brain as we look to the horizon here in 2021? As you know, I do run a U.S. and global portfolio too. So it's not only emerging markets. In fact, we have major part of the book is actually 80% of the book is developed markets. And if you look at, we still quite like the financials in both US and Europe. Technology, while we were sitting at three, four years ago, in the global book, we had like 45% technology. I mean, down to like mid to high teens. So we do feel that areas that will be, A, they've been caught up with restructuring has happened. So you know, there's a lot of consolidation which has taken place in those industries. Hence, the profitability going forward is going to be stronger for longer, but the markets aren't fully incorporating that. Because it's interesting, we were talking before the show that there's this company out of Uruguay, which is now being valued at $5 billion, whether that might be 35, maybe 40 times forward revenue. We don't know yet. That is an indication of the excess capital that is going in. One reason why countries like Russia have decent returns is because there's no capital going in there. If you have a monopolistic position there, guess what? Nobody's trying to set up a new Russian steel plant. Not going to happen. And that leads to higher returns on capital. So at the industry level, we feel that industry that has struggled for last decade, they probably will have better return pattern than they get credit for on a selective basis because there's not much capital going in. Nobody's setting up. But the ESG factors are raising the barriers to entry. Try get an approval. I mean, you'll be surprised to know that there's not been a single new greenfield steel plants set up in India for the last 15 years. It takes forever to get approvals there now. So the barriers to entry begin to shift. While software, I don't think so. there's a problem getting funding. Some of the things that I get funding, it's just mind-boggling. Whether it's China or US, it doesn't matter. So we feel that the center of gravity is beginning to shift. We are in early days of where the returns are going to be. And that could be industrials, that could be some financials, that could be other areas. And if interest rates go up, there'll be icing on the cake. So if you're sitting here from 2001, 2007, 8, we had no technology. And last decade or so, we had quite a bit of technology. But now I feel that the tide is turning away from a future return perspective to some of those businesses, which tend to be a little more cyclical. But they were also cyclical because economic growth was lower. So if the growth picks up, they may no longer be as cyclical. On the other side, where the capital has gone in a massive way, the returns might be lower because there's so much capital sloshing around. You mentioned India pandemic sort of aside, what's the opportunity set look like there? You have massive emerging market population market that's growing. Is there a lot of opportunity in the stock market there today, contrasted with your experience there in the 80s? Obviously, there's risk of me being biased. But our exposure in India, if I was sitting at five, six years ago, was the global portfolio on mid-teen level. It went down to basically zero. Now it's beginning to go up because one of the things which is happening is that the recovery pre this last wave was actually very strong. If you look at February, March data, India was already 100, 
And by the way, there wasn't much of stimulus. They didn't have the money to stimulate anyway. So there was no, stimulus wasn't an issue because there was no money. But the recovery was almost 100, 203% as of February and early March into the activity level. And we feel as we talk to vast sort of array of banks and so on and so forth, the underlying demand picture, because banks typically give very good pulse. It doesn't mean you have to own banks, by the way, just to be clear. So when I talk about financials, it doesn't mean you have to own a financial big way, but it does give you a sense of what's happening. And that is why there's a good chance the growth could be stronger coming out of this because the banking systems globally are coming out in much better shape than GFC. So in India is no different that banking, the non-performing loan situation has improved quite a bit. So we do feel that the recovery is going to be a little bit stronger. On the other side, if you look at what has done well, that is true in emerging markets across the board, a lot of steady eddies, Hindustan, Unilever, India, 55, 60 times earnings. Nestle India, 70, 75 times earnings. Asian paint, 60 times earnings. So the valuations have gone in a total gaga territory and not just in developed markets and emerging markets also, companies that have got a much more steady eddy growth. And I think that's where the opportunity is shifting away from. As we find ourselves here, almost summertime, anything on your brain that you're particularly excited or worried about as you think about markets and look to the future? Excited maybe is the wrong word because <laughs> excited could be good or bad. So I would say it's bad excitement is that there's obvious signs of frothiness everywhere. It's not just not crypto or software, but there's just Robin Hood. You go in every area. And by the way, there's not a US only phenomenon that's happening. The margin lending or aggressive retail participation, IPO pipeline, so on and so forth. It's beginning to dry, dry out a little bit. These are not signs of an early part of the cycle. These are signs of late part of the cycles. The question and that the worry is, and I'm not predicting that, what happens if inflation turns out a little less transitory and next summer, we still talk about three handle on inflation, not two handle. And if that happens and the real rates go back to what the norm is, I don't think the markets are ready for that. And the problem is we can only do so much. You don't turn the portfolio over because you expect the world to be this or that. I feel better ways keep reacting to the data points and then keep adjusting, keep adjusting, keep adjusting rather than making these five, 10-year forecasts one way or the other. But anybody with a little longer-term horizon should be worried because that could mean changing leadership quite a bit. And I think, so the most aggressive growth shops, and by the way, if you look at the data, the top 20 percentile of US stocks, if you break them simply by price to sales, they are way above the dot-com bubble. They have come down recently, but they're still bubblish level. So the question is, what happens to that? And by the way, there are some large cap names too. These are not micro caps. So the difference between, in some ways, is better than .com, but in a number of ways, it's actually worse because it's happening at much larger sort of market cap spectrum than even then. And that will have a ripple through effect in a lot of different areas. That does have me a little bit worried. The inflation concept of, if you look historically, market-wide levels, when you're in that sort of safe, warm and fuzzy zone of, let's call it 1% to 3%, Historically speaking, in the U.S. and elsewhere, you have investors paying the highest earnings multiples, like they're willing to pay more for things to be kind of cozy. And really, when you start to creep up above sort of that three, four, five percent zone, the valuations, at least historically, start to fall off a cliff. And the path to that, as you sort of alluded to, depending on what interest rates do, creates a very uncomfortable situation for traditional sort of 60-40 sort of investment set in the U.S. and potentially elsewhere. But that's a 
market environment that most people haven't really experienced with bonds and stocks sort of all of a sudden correlated again for the first time in a while. It's a little uncomfortable. Speaking of uncomfortable, we have an old thread where I talk about investment beliefs that I hold that the majority, or I said the vast majority of my peers as investment professionals don't hold. So let's say like 75% of your peers don't believe something that you believe in. Is there anything in particular, we talked about a few, I think today, philosophical ideas that you particularly believe at your core that most of your compatriots don't? And it could be simple or it could be super weird, but anything come to mind? I think the biggest one probably would be that everything is temporary and the only survive long-term is to be adaptive. There's nothing permanent in this world. So let's not assume about one trend or the other. And the problem is we can't predict the duration of that. So if you had that mindset that this too shall end, then chances are you'll be more open to reacting to it rather than saying, nope, it'll be fine. And there's a big price I'm paying for that, by the way. The results won't be as good because if you truly believe in something, if you're kind of like a religious belief, I'm going to own Microsoft till whatever, and full disclosure, if you do own Microsoft, then chance you'll make more money versus saying, gee, I don't know, and the data points turn and you react to it. And that could be style, that could be stars, that could be sector, that could be countries, could be anything. So that I would say is probably summarizes everything that you got to be a little more, my personal belief, if this is temporary, then you need to be able to adapt without trying to predict what's going to happen, but be receptive to change as it happens. The hard part in real world example we like to allude to that I think people can really relate to is that emotional attachment, particularly once you buy something. And the analogy we like to make is you don't think this is true if you go buy a stock or a market or an asset class. Like everyone loves to get attached emotionally to one asset, whether again, that's Bitcoin, Tesla, or gold stocks, or dividend stocks, or US, or Russia, whatever it may be. And I say, if you don't think you become seriously emotionally and psychologically biased to that and have a different approach once you own it, go walk into your garage and go look at all the craft that you own. There's no way in the world you would go buy again if you were <laughs> to clean the garage and say, okay, here's $1,000 or for some of y'all, probably 10000 of junk sitting in there. Otherwise, why would you keep it? So the same thinking, I think, really applies to portfolio. The example we used to give is say, look, take out a white piece of paper and you did this firm wide, which is kind of amazing given where you guys are, but also applies to your individual portfolio and say, all right, if I'm going to start from scratch, what would it look like today? And then compare it to what you own. And why is it so different if it is? So many people own these legacy funds or investments that no way in the world would they buy today if given a blank slate. So anyway, that mindset though is hard to refresh. We have become the inertia of just getting stuck in these old beliefs and ownership that it's hard to think otherwise. Yep, exactly. All right, my man, look, we've held you for a long time. If you look back over your career, I imagine there's been thousands of investments. Any particular that stick out as the most memorable, good, bad, in between? It's fascinating. I'll give you a story. There was a former Japanese client. He was a client now, actually. Former, like he was a client before too. A few years ago, three years ago, they came over and they had a list of almost all the trades going back, my trades, 20 plus years. And they said, he said, we would like to discuss some of these with you. This is 20 years, thousands of trades, okay? Actually, 22 years, 23 years. I don't know where they got the data, by the way. 
So, <laughs> and I was looking back over the weekend, the weekend before the meeting, and I said, I was embarrassed. I can't believe I would do these kind of mistakes. It's just fascinating. And I was saying, man, I'm surprised I'm still in the business. <laughs> sort of rather than one mistake, it's just shocking that despite making all these mistakes on an ongoing basis, as long as you're willing to adapt and learn and adapt and learn, you could still do okay. So it's just not one large mistake. There's a bunch of them, but as the energy names in 2008, I wish I had cut back sooner because we did sell out of financials. The dot com, there's a laundry list. There's every market cycle, there are a bunch of names. You always go back and see, I could have, I should have. From tequila crisis on, brother, there was tequila crisis, Asian crisis, Russian crisis. I'm the laundry list of crises that are now that run money through. So I think that's a good news also is that you can still survive as long as you don't let one or two large mistakes define you. You don't anchor too much and you have some sort of risk management tool where you're willing to cut your loss. I think this topic, and we talk a lot about it in somewhat of a slightly different phrase, but the concept of just surviving and not getting taken out of the game is like the most important rule applies to so many things in life, but particularly with investing and bankroll management, the really only number one rule is you just can't go to zero to take out the whole bankroll. But there's always a lot of seduction out there of tantalizing investments that come across the plate every day that certainly can get you there quicker than others. Rajiv, it's been a lot of fun. Where do people find you? If they're interested in your funds, what you're up to, writings, reports, all that good stuff, commentaries, where do they go? Well, they can reach out at gqgpartners.com. And obviously, we're based out of Fort Lauderdale. So more than a few people now coming back this way. So, But yeah, GQG Partners, you'll find us. Awesome, Rajiv. This is a great one. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. <laughs>